at the top, everybody's hardworking and everybody's smart. You need to have an advantage, a competitive advantage. And the way to get that for me and for a lot of other people is to master the soft skills. And what we found is that, of course, a lot of people have hard skills and technical skills, and a lot of people, especially software engineers or people in different positions that are not sales, they find out way too late that they need these soft skills no matter what in order to advance in the organization. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. And I'm your other co-host, Michael Palmer. And boy, do we have an exciting show planned for you today. Michael, I'm really excited about today's guest. He is actually a legend in the world of podcasting. He's one of the pioneers in the industry. He used to work on Wall Street uh, in the financial industry as a lawyer. He has been a host of his own show on Sirius XM Radio. He is super well-known. He's got tons of followers on social media. I was just on his Twitter feed before the interview, and I saw he has 425,000 followers. And I'm speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legend himself, Jordan Harbinger. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me on board, guys. I appreciate it. You bet. And Nikki, you missed one really important detail. He's been kidnapped twice. What? Okay. Is this true? Yeah, it's not something that we can probably cover on this show, but yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm thinking that's that. like a, a, an hour, at least an hour episode. <laughs> yeah, that's a long hold. That's a whole thing in itself. But yeah, that's true. Wow. Over uh, the last time was 12 years ago, and before that, it was when I was 20, so going on 17 years. So there are kids that are looking to uh, join the army who who were, you know, born after just after that. So wow. it's been a while. It's been a minute. Okay, well, listen, let's get to the to the content of the show. Jordan, you know what? You have uh, one of the top podcasts in the world right now on iTunes. I think you've been number one on iTunes as well. You've got some great guests on your podcast. The concept of your podcast is amazing. How is it that you came to be where you're at today? Tell us a bit about your story. Sure, so when I was a kid, I was a little bit shy and and I would get into trouble and things like that and go on the internet and things back in the nineties, back when it was kind of new. And I ended up becoming a, an FBI informant for by, by virtue of the fact that I had become friends with some, some hacker types. And I was really, really young and I had figured out how to clone cellular phones. And what that means is basically turning cellular phones into the two way radios that they are. But with you able to manually control what's going on inside the phone. So I was able to listen to conversations and things like that around me. And that got me really interested in people. And as I started working with law enforcement agencies and things like that, I started to really become even more interested in human behavior and the way that you could apply it to get certain results. And later on, I went to law school and I had at that point been kind of like this smart, nerdy kid that had coasted by in high school. And then in college and law school, I was able to outwork people who were maybe smarter than me or, or as smart as me. And then when I got to Wall Street to become an attorney, I realized, wow, everybody here works really hard and is really smart. I have no competitive advantage anymore. And I started to fall back on the skill set of 
human behavior and using those soft skills, those people skills in order to advance in, an, in the organization. Because I had seen one of the partners that had hired me was doing the same thing. He was a young guy. He was a guy from Brooklyn with a tan. So obviously he knows something other people don't. And he was never in the office. And one day I said, look, man, I don't get why we're supposed to bill six minute increments here, but you're never in the office. Do you just work from home a lot? What's the deal? And he said, no, you know, I bring in a lot of the deals. I bring in a lot of the business. And so I don't have to worry about how many hours I bill because when I'm able to bring in deals, I basically can write my own tickets. So I made partner and I just have to keep, make sure the deal flow keeps happening. And so I spend my time doing that. And I thought, okay, now I can regain my competitive advantage here because I can basically find what skill sets are needed, what type of people we want to bring in, develop relationships with those people, instead of just focusing on the same sort of crowded path to the top, which is trying to outwork everyone and build more hours, or trying to be the smartest guy in the room. And I figured that if I focused on the soft skills and the people skills in the beginning, then by the time we're all fifth, six-year associates and the rest of everybody wakes up to the fact that you need to have those skill sets in place, I'll already have a major time advantage and skill advantage on a lot of these people. And I never actually got the chance to test that hypothesis because we hit the 2008 recession. We didn't end up getting that much work. And I took the salary that they were paying us on Wall Street, basically telling us, go get another job. I simply reinvested into the art of charm which is the show that your that your fans will hopefully listen to after this, uh, the Art of Charm podcast, as well as the Art of Charm school that we run these workshops where we teach these same skills. So I basically ended up with unintentionally getting seed capital from the firm that had hired me, which was also the firm that had sort of showed me, look, at the top, everybody's hardworking and everybody's smart. You need to have an advantage, a competitive advantage. And the way to get that for me and for a lot of other people is to master the soft skills. And what we found is that, of course, a lot of people have hard skills and technical skills. And a lot of people, especially software engineers or people in different positions that are not sales, they find out way too late that they need these soft skills no matter what in order to advance in the organization. And uh, so that's essentially how we kind of got our start here at the Art of Charm. And my business partner, AJ, who's still with us here, he had met me way back in law school as well. And we had started the show, The Art of Charm, 10 years ago now to teach these soft skills in, in a way that was free and easily accessible for everybody because we knew that they were important. And we figured by starting a platform that teaches these soft skills, not only would it be a great way to possibly start a business, which we later on found out was, was a really good idea by accident, but also having that platform gives us access to the experts that are in this area that can teach us the skills in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's great. thousand percent, man. You know, I really like what you're saying, Jordan, because let's face it, the folks who listen to our podcast tend to be experts like coaches, consultants, you know, trainers, facilitators, speakers, authors, people like that. Many of these people are really amazing at what they do, but they're great technicians, but they don't necessarily pay as much attention to mastering these types of soft skills that you're talking about. I myself happen to be from the Jordan Harbinger School in that I believe in soft skills and I believe in building relationships and becoming better at relating to people because I like people and I, and I think that we're here to, to, to make connections with people, but not everybody does. So your message, I think, is going to fall 
on, on some receptive ears here because these folks want to learn ways that they can use these soft skills to grow their income, to grow their impact, and grow their influence. It's very important to them. What specifically would you say to somebody who's, you know, really talented as a coach or a consultant, an aspiring thought leader that they can do, you know, utilizing your message to position themselves as a, as, as a more impressive authority? Sure. So I, I definitely recommend people to not actually start podcasts and do things like that. I recommend people focus on relationships and social capital, of course, but I definitely don't necessarily want to recommend podcasting. I think it worked for a lot of people who started early. It works for a lot of people now who have a pre-existing audience, but it really is a very mediocre slash bad way for most people to brand themselves. On the plus side, you get great engagement. You get really dedicated fans and listeners. The, on the downside, it's, it's nearly impossible to grow and keep listeners of a given show because it's a performance. iTunes is finicky. Discoverability is terrible. And there's a technical hurdle for a lot of people to, to go and, and check it out. If I tell your grandmother to watch a YouTube video, she'll probably be able to get it or she'll just Google it and figure it out. If you tell your grandmother to go to listen to a podcast, you basically have to say, all right, sit in your front of your computer for an hour and a half listening to an audio file or for 45 minutes or 20 minutes listening to an audio file or go on your phone and then go to the app store and then download this app and then inside the app, search for the art of charm. And then in the art of charm comes up, you click subscribe and then those you can play as individual. I mean, you get the idea. It's, it's very, it's very difficult. So you're only speaking to a subset audience of a, of another niche piece of media. So podcasting itself is just not there yet. However, it's in this unhappy purgatory between, well, it's not really early where you can start and gain market share just by being here but it's not late enough where it's so easy to start one and everybody can find it and everybody listens to podcasts. So why not yours? So we're basically right now is actually not a great time to start a show unless you can do it and you don't care if anybody listens. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So what would you suggest they do since you're telling them not to start the podcast? What would you suggest they do instead? It depends on where you're comfortable. So if you're comfortable in front of the camera and you don't think of outsourcing yourself and trying to get somebody else to do the work for you, then go ahead and do YouTube. But I honestly, I think blogging is underrated as a platform. Blogging and writing, I should just be clear, writing in general. Uh, that same thing goes with books. And I think the reason for this is that there's so many other trendy new media outlets. But the problem is that well, if you're just going to be one of those social media masters and have a great Instagram, you're going to find that your audience is, well, what a lot of Instagram people find their audience is, which is too young, unqualified, and flighty. Short attention span because you're addressing people in that exact same space where they're not trying to focus on something and do a deep dive into it. Along with YouTube, though, and any sort of performance-based outlets such as podcasting, YouTube uh, videos, anything like that, the, you come up with the problem, which is that you have to perform. You have to run an entertaining show. You have to run a good show that has good content. You have to do that regularly. It's work intensive. If you're on camera, then square that with the fact that you also have to look good while you do it. In addition to that, the other problem is that you can't outsource this, right? If I decide, oh man, you know, I'm so sick of making these weekly videos. I've got so many other things I need to do. Well, tough luck. You're the guy in the videos. You're the girl in the videos. People come to see you. Same with podcasting. If I decide I don't want to do the show for a few weeks, well, I better record a few weeks of shows before I go on vacation because I can't just hire somebody else to do the show for me. It doesn't work. 
You lose listeners when you do that. People come for you. That's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. With blogs, you can hire an army of writers, and as long as they can master your voice, you could put out a piece every hour if you had the budget. And the quality could still be there. You really can scale that massively, and you can't do that with performances. It's impossible. So I would say that writing is underrated. I mean, there's a reason that authors who can really crush book marketing by using other channels such as email, social, and their other outlets are still getting paid loads and loads of money. You can get million-dollar book advances if you have an audience already. And the way to do that is to basically go back to the drawing board and remember that you've got to cultivate people who are willing to read you and are going to come for you specifically. I think it's really inefficient to go out there and start a show and then start a video thing. You're going to spend all your time running that and you're going to spend zero time doing the deep work that you need to keep innovating, which is how you might get your audience in the first place. That's brilliantly said. That's brilliantly said. So, Talk more about the deep work because obviously, you know, the fact that you've been doing this podcast since 2006 effectively really gives you a lot of credibility and also gives you a lot of what Malcolm Gladwell calls those 10,000 hours in the saddle, right? How do you think our listener can take advantage of your wisdom around doing the deep work for themselves? I think that the issue is setting aside doing, well, first of all, you have to be willing to do the deep work. And I think that that sounds really obvious, but there are so many people that are actually not willing to do the deep work. We see, and I'm not going to mention any names, of course, but you and uh, everyone listening, I'm, I'm sure has seen people on social media that you're just like, what does this person do aside from have lots of fans on social media? I don't, I don't get it. I was doing a show with Forbes yesterday about the Hollywood list, the 30 under 30. And when we started talking about some of these digital influencers, I looked at what they were doing and a lot of them got famous on Vine and now they do YouTube and they're essentially comedians, but really their audience is like 13 to 17 year old kids. And that's a big problem when you're 22 and you're thinking, okay, what am I going to do for the next 10 years? Are you still going to talk to 14 year olds? It's going to be weird. It's going to be more creepy than it already is after a very <laughs> short time. And, and so you have to figure out what you're going to do because all of the Vine Loops, which is now, of course, a dead network that doesn't exist anymore, it, that should be your first red flag because it's not like people weren't using it. It just wasn't making any money. And now that you've got YouTube, which is ad revenue supported and you can become an influencer on there, you have to really be talking to an audience that's going to grow with you. And in order to do that, you have to be growing yourself. And I think that's a concept that seems to somehow be lost on a lot of quote unquote thought leaders and influencers. I know a lot of people that have written books and then 25 years later, they're talking about the same subject matter and that's fine, but it is very, very, very self-limiting. How is it possible that 25 years later, you still don't have new content? You're not innovating at all. And that's a big problem. If you want your audience to grow with you, you have to be growing yourself. And so what I'm doing to try to combat this is not only am I reading every book for the guests that I have on the show, not only am I doing a lot of prep in that area, but I'm constantly learning about new things and, and trying to innovate inside the Art of Charm. My business partners are doing the same thing, innovating our curriculum, creating new tools and toolbox episodes for our audience, things like body language, persuasion, influence, even if it's not our content per se, we're still taking existing content and then adding to it and innovating in those areas. And people come for those. Those are the most popular episodes once people get hooked on the show. 
And the reason that this is important is because somebody who listens to you 10 years ago who wanted to listen to you because they moved to a new town and they wanted to create a new social network because they got a new job, that person is not going to have that same set of problems 10 years later unless there's a lot of other problems that they have in their life. And I don't know about you, but I don't want an audience or, or uh, a client base that's full of unsolvable 10 year old problems that are still basically not closed. We haven't closed the case on those things. That's a bad sign. So in order to be able to continually solve other people's problems and not have that churn in your audience, you want those lifetime fans, you have to grow with them or they're going to leave you. And we found out that the hard way. And it was really easy to make the switch because what we found was we were talking a lot about dating and stuff like that in our twenties and talking about networking and stuff in our thirties. And we still are more focused on networking and relationship development. However, when we started to see that, oh man, I'm so tired of talking about some of this dating stuff, but you know, that's where the majority of our audience comes from. I basically at that point had told my business partners, look, I can't keep talking about this. If we want to keep talking about this, I could do the show like once a month or something like that with your help, but I got to leave. I got to do something else. And they said, no, 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 we got to do something we all enjoy. So we thought, all right, we're going to take a big hit in our client base. We're going to take a big hit in our show listeners and our fan base if we switch, but it's going to be something tolerable and we'll make it work. Well, the results were ridiculously surprising. What happened was I started to do shows that had nothing to do with anything we'd previously talked about. So instead of having yet another psychologist on, which I, I don't get me wrong, I love having those people on, but the topics we were discussing six years ago were not no longer my bag, we can say. I might have General Hayden, the head of the CIA NSA, General McChrystal, the theater commander for special forces in Iraq. We had a lot of other professional athletes come on, a lot of other thought leaders come on. And I thought, this is much more fun, but we'll see how it goes. Well, what happened was, our existing audience said, great, you guys are finally branching out. I, I dig it. And people who normally wouldn't have ever listened to us went, I find myself thinking that the Art of Charm podcast is now my favorite show, even though I listened to it a couple years ago and I thought, nah, this isn't for me. And the reason is not because we're casting a wider net. I want to be very specific here. It's not because we're like, we need to appeal to everyone. Let's have internet celebrities come on so that we look like we're famous too. That whole famous by association thing and that whole like standing on the shoulders of giants. I don't necessarily like that. But what we were doing was creating unique content that was well-produced in my opinion with people that other folks were interested in and having our very unique perspective and voice in those same interviews. So people who are interested in what we were doing found, well, okay, you've given me a lot of content to solve other problems of mine in the past. Now you're giving me content to solve other problems of mine in the present time or that I might have in the future. And that is interesting. So to put it in sort of a, a shorter, a sh there's a long answer to a short question here. But what I mean is instead of trying to figure out what my audience was going to be interested in all of the time, I simply did what I was interested in and everybody who was not in with, at least with respect to a certain core idea, human behavior is what we focus on at the art of charm. I focused on what I was interested in with respect to that core idea. And what ended up happening was the audience said, great, I can dig that. And the few, maybe the 10, 15% of people who thought, Ugh, I don't need this, they left. But what we ended up with was a 10X in audience size because other people who were really going through and interested in the same things that I was decided to get on board. And that was a huge realization for me because I think a lot of thought leaders and a lot of people who are selling their ideas online are thinking, okay, 
I'm the person who writes about management in Fortune 500 companies in the C level, and that's their bread and butter. What they don't realize is actually people who are doing management at the C level are not only interested in talking about management at the C level, they're real living, breathing human beings that have other interests. And so if you've got that type of audience, you might consider talking with them about other things that educated, smart, affluent people are interested in and see if they respond. And I, I think what, what I'm hearing you say is, is similar to an artist that as they grow older, their tastes change, their audience's tastes are changing. And if you grow with your audience, it's a benefit to all, which you've had enough time in this space that it is like almost a, you know, that your audience is growing up alongside of you. And you're, as your interests change, they're, they're kind of following the same way, which is, which is really cool. And I'd really, I'd really like to hear your take on some of the people out there that are really hitting it. Like you've not, you've said a, a few things about podcasting and some different things that you think are are not great. And you mentioned writing's great, but who out in the marketplace do you see is doing a really good job of this? Uh, you know, obviously a lot of folks like. Well, let me let me think about this for a second. There's a lot of people who are doing a really great job building their audience, but here's the problem. What, what makes a good audience? That's the question, right? Because we see a lot of internet marketers building huge audiences of people that I think probably are not the kind of people that you and I would want to, to really be interfacing with our brand. If that makes sense. I, I don't it think, does. I think there's it a does. lot of people building massive hundreds of thousands of fans on Snapchat and Instagram, and they're selling millions of dollars worth of product. But what they're doing is relying on the low levels of sophistication that some of those audience members have. And they're, they're managing to hold on to some of the money, either through the laziness of that same audience or through tricky refund policies. Are they doing a good <laughs> job building an audience? Debatably, yes, because they have the numbers. But when you look at an audience that's going to be really, really done really, really well, like a Tim Ferriss type of audience, you're looking at somebody who is never going to dumb down the product, at least is going to be very, very hesitant to dumb down the product while they might try to appeal to a lot of different people in different niches because you see things on Tim's show like fitness and you see things like business and investing. What you're really seeing is somebody who says, people who are go-getters are often trying to find the best ways to train physically. Let's talk about that. People who are go-getters are often affluent and trying to figure out ways to spend and invest their money. Let's talk about that. Uh, people who are go-getters are often trying to find ways to streamline their business. Let's talk about and go for that. that he's, what he's not doing is going, I'm going to teach, I'm going to tell people I can teach them to be rich so that they follow me and they download my stuff because those people will pollute a good audience and drive it away. And that's a huge problem. You really don't want to cast that wide net. In my opinion, it will work. You will get a big audience, but you will have to constantly throw money, AKA gasoline on the fire in order to keep it going because so many people are doing that. They're buying that audience, that low level of sophistication. And two, those people tend to be looking for easy answers. So the next person who says, well, you, you know, this person th threw money on the fire and told me they were going to make me rich and I've been following them for six months and nothing's happened. What about this other guy who says that? You don't want that type of churn. I want people to listen to Art of Charm for six, six years, not six months. I want people to listen to what we're doing and be following us for the next decade, not going, oh, well, here's another show that has something similar and promises some other type of result. That's not what we're looking for. And, and that's a much harder thing to do because your growth is much, much slower when you do it that way. 
Yeah, I like what you're saying. It's really thinking about what, who do you want your audience to be and then building that audience from quality perspective versus a, a quantity perspective. It's very interesting. I mean, we're, we're constantly looking at this and we're new, relatively new into the game and we're, we're along the same notes you're saying here is build an audience of people that are interested in what we're interested in and it, you keep going, you're going to eventually have people sticking around and those people are going to be the people that are going to fit for our audience. I like the reference to Tim Ferriss. Who, who else are you seeing? And, you know, you've mentioned YouTube. What, are, what tools are you using that you find are most successful for yourself? The tools that we're using, I mean, look, YouTube is very useful. Uh, Facebook ads are very useful. Podcasting has been very useful. But again, it's podcasts are kind of like, let me think of an analogy here. You're, podcasts you're are big, very useful. We're big time down on the podcast. Holy cow. This is great. Yeah, I just, because it's trendy BS, really. It really is. Most podcasts, they fail after, before 10 episodes because of the amount of work involved. It's a lot it's of just, work. It's, yeah. it's just really, a, it's a cul-de-sac and it's, um, it's been sold as a panacea for so many entrepreneurs, um, because of a seemingly low bar barrier to entry, which is never actually a good reason to buy or do something, but I digress. Um, podcasting is useful. It's kind of like, imagine a big sharp sword, right? It's so useful if you know what you are doing. But if you don't, you're just going to flail around and you might even hurt yourself. And that's what I think podcasting is like. So if I go on Tony Robbins podcast, for example, I might get a ton, a tens of thousands of new show fans. However, if you go and you do that same show, we somehow manage to do it and you do something mediocre, you worse yet, you embarrass yourself you've officially tainted your brand. And it's very easy to do that in a live platform when you're being interviewed by somebody else who's experienced on their platform in real time and you're not sure what you're doing. It's kind of like going on The Tonight Show, right? If if you go on there and you can crush it, you're David Copperfield and you pull off an illusion, instant famous, right? But if you go on there and your trick fails and you embarrass yourself, well, you have the consequences to bear. Oh, Podcasting, yeah. the stakes are, are very similar. That person controls the output product. YouTube, you control the output product. Blogging, writing, you control the output, the final product. Podcasting, you really don't. You only control yours, but you have no audience. And so you have to be very, very careful with it. But for me, it's my main tool because I know that when I go on other shows, I can deliver content that's not necessarily going to appeal to everyone, but will appeal to a certain type of person who is intellectually curious, who's a very good critical thinker, or I should say a very adamant <laughs> critical thinker, and who also doesn't mind an authentic voice uh, that speaks their mind and doesn't like to sugarcoat things. And I think everyone thinks they're that person, but not everybody really is that person. A lot of people say they want to hear it straight, but really then when you look at their consumption habits, they're watching and reading a lot of inspirational stuff that's pretty light on take-home advice. I think that there is a hunger out there right now for authenticity and for being politically incorrect. I mean, you know, you guys just had an election down there in the U.S., and you elected a guy who's completely politically incorrect, and it just seems like as much as he's got his detractors, you've got a lot of people that like hearing it straight. They don't want the same political BS that everybody else bloviates. And I kind of like your style because you've been really straight, you've been really controversial in some of the things you've said. So kudos to you, man. You're one of us. <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, I appreciate it. You know, <laughs> welcome to our club or thank you for welcoming us to yours, however way uh, it works <laughs> sure. for you. So listen, here's the thing. We like to end off each and every show by asking our expert guests for their top three expert action steps that they would like to impart to our listener. And then at the end of that, if you've got something specific you want to promote, like, you know, if it's your podcast, if it's a new program, if it's a new book, whatever, we'll give you an opportunity to do that as well. So would you please just go ahead and do the three expert action steps first? Sure. I'll keep them as short as possible. So step one is set aside blocks for deep work. We sort of mentioned this earlier on the show, but what I think a lot of people do is they don't really set aside any time to get real things done. They think they're doing that where they're like, tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to spend the whole time writing. And then when you look at what they're actually doing, if you look at rescue time, if they've installed that program, for example, you see they've done a lot of email, they've checked their Facebook a few times, they've done a lot of other stuff, even if they did get writing done. But the problem isn't that they didn't spend enough time writing. The problem is they spend enough time distracting themselves that they never really got into it. And we see you have to create deep work blocks you have to be able to get into focus here. So we want to see at least two, three hour blocks per week where you're doing nothing but working on something that is a larger project, like a book, written, produced content, not this BS content marketing stuff that people are throwing out there, actual content that is your product. And if content marketing is your product, well, we've got other problems. But work on the deep stuff, the stuff that you normally don't have time for because you don't make time for it. The second thing is, uh, and this goes really, really well with scheduling those deep work blocks, live by your calendar. What I see a lot of new entrepreneurs do, especially not even new entrepreneurs in general, what I see them doing is this, okay, well, you know, tomorrow I've only got a couple things and I go, oh, okay, cool. So you have time this time, this time, this time. And they go, yeah, yeah, I'm flexible. And I go, what do you mean you're flexible? When are those two things that you have to get done tomorrow? Oh, whenever. And I go, wait a second, let me see your calendar. And they either have a calendar that's blank or they have a calendar with two things on it. And I go, well, what are you going to do in the middle of these other blocks? And they go, well, you know, there's always something to do. And I, it's, it starts to occur to me that, oh, I see your to-do list, which is a mile long and has things like write book or answer email or something like that, or social media that doesn't have any place on your calendar. So all of your to-dos have to live if you're going to do this right, all of your to-dos, all of your tasks, everything you have to do has to live in some place in space and time, or it will not get done. And if it does, it won't get done well, and it won't get done regularly. So my day is broken down into 15-minute blocks starting around 7 a.m. And that doesn't mean every task is 15 minutes long, but it means that the calendar, of course, that comes with the Mac, uh, breaks things down into those those particular blocks. And it works really well. And I do that until dinner. And then at 6 th- 6.30 p.m., the rest of my evening is blocked off so that people can't schedule things because if it's on the calendar, it gets done. If it's not on the calendar, it does not get done because there's something else there that does. And this is very important because what this means is my to-do list is very minimal because everything that's on it is going in a certain place to get done at a certain time. Mm -hmm. And what that means is those things actually get done. And so when I see people who are, oh, well, there's not enough hours in the day, there sure are. You're just prioritizing terribly because what you're ended up doing is you've, you have no control over your day. And when you have enough flexibility, what ends up happening is you've got emergencies that crop up and things have to get pushed. And then instead of pushing them and rescheduling them, so for example, if you've got a three-hour email block or a three-hour writing block, 
if something comes up during that time, you have to move that whole block. You can't just say, I'll do this later. You have to move it physically in the calendar. And when you do that, you start to go, oh crap, I literally cannot do this and do these other three things in the same day. You start pushing stuff onto weekends and you realize I don't want to live like this. So you push it down and you push it down and you push it down. And what you find is a actual, a reasonable way that you can get the amount of work done that you think right now, if you schedule a call with me, it'll probably happen in March unless it's urgent, which most of these things never are. And that's not because I'm so important. It's because I book certain amounts of time to get certain amounts of things, things done. Mm. If there's not enough time, it simply gets pushed down the line. What I found is that, gee, all those opportunities that I was worried about losing, if I waited, they're still there when I actually have time to do them. If there really is something urgent, I can move or remove something else and prioritize that in its place. But what I can't do is overbook myself. And that's been huge for my sanity. It's been great because now I have time to work on things that matter. And what I found is that when you don't have time for emergencies and you don't have a lot of extra flexibility built into your schedule, well, emergencies kind of aren't happening. They just don't exist. And one of the reasons for that is also because of, perhaps this is my third rule here, if I haven't already gone over that, but somebody else's self-created emergency is not your emergency. And I found this with scheduling to be so true. If somebody blows it or they have a power failure or they forgot to do something and they need to move something, it's, that's fine. I'm not mad at all. I totally can handle that. The thing is, no, we can't do it later this week or later today. It just gets pushed to the end of the line. It's not my emergency. And it's not, this isn't an arrogance thing. This isn't a self-importance thing. What this is, is a sanity thing. Because what you'll find is that when your emergency, when their emergencies don't become yours, you find that, man, you just don't have that many emergencies. And don't get me wrong. If your kids get sick or something like that, you can move things around, but that becomes your choice and within your control. Otherwise you're letting other people dictate your schedule. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't trust the way that other people are organized. And I really don't want to hand over the reins to my life and my business to somebody who can't even use the freaking calendar app that came with their phone. Well, absolutely. Damn, that was awesome. You know, I have a, uh, a mentor, and actually in another area, he's a mentor of Michael and I's because he's on one of our programs. His name's Steve, Steve Richmond. And uh, we were talking about a mutual friend yesterday who was a very successful businessman. And uh, Steve runs a program for men. It's just for men. And this fella signed up to be part of this course, right? And he sent Steve a text and he said, Steve, I'm overbooked. I may be 15 minutes late. And Steve's response was, don't overbook, don't be late. If you're even two seconds late, you're out of the course. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to Steve. I said, well, man, you might lose this guy. You know, you might lose a client. He says, that's his issue, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> that's how straight he was about it. That's his issue, not mine. He's going to learn a lesson one way or another. He'll either be on time and get that that's important, or he won't, and he'll be kicked out of the course, and you'll get the lesson that way. And I'm like, damn, that's... You know, at first it struck me as a little cold, but then I go, just like what you just said right now, that's actually bang on. You're serving that man by being straight with him and telling him you're not putting up with that kind of nonsense. Well, well absolutely. I mean, first of all, I don't think we talked about this, but I was late for this. But I, of course, I told you guys beforehand because I have courtesy, but I was late for this and I was fully ready and prepared and not going to be reactive about if the answer, if you guys came back and said, oh, well, sorry, we missed the window. We have to reschedule or 
sorry, we missed the window. We're not doing the show anymore. I was prepared for those consequences and I would have not blamed you. Right. On the other hand, if you said, look, we need to go over the slot by a little more. I have built in flexibility today for that very specific thing because I'm doing a lot of interviews today. Um, and, and I build that in because, you know, ish happens, especially with tech. Yeah, absolutely. So it becomes the it becomes a completely unemotional decision, right? Like if I had called you guys or if my assistant had emailed you and said Jordan's going to be late and you went unacceptable, you're off the program, I would have gone, "Well, I I I get it. I'm I understand why. I don't want to mess with their stuff and I have no hard feelings." Or if you say, "Fine, we can do it again in 2 months." I wouldn't go, "What? 2 months?" I would say, "Totally understand." And you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to do it in exactly the same way that you set it up, right? Because otherwise, it would be very unfair for me to sit here and say, emergencies don't happen and people can't be flexible, da 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 And then I go, and then you won't give me uh, the flexibility that I won't give other people and I get mad about it. You really can't do that, right? It's, it's, bad for your, it's bad for you to not be able to walk the walk like that. But you're right. Your friend is serving that client really well because I'll, I'll be honest. If that guy can't manage his schedule enough to even get to the course on time that's going to supposedly change his business and life, you got a big problem here. The big problem is not that you're overbooked. The problem is you can't manage your life to the point where even things that should be taking priority are not happening for you because you can't wake up earlier. You can't figure out transit time accurately. Uh, you know, you don't have the, the means to stand by all those opportunities and it's a hard pill to swallow. But after a while, Either you stress yourself out to the point where you fall apart or you lose opportunities or you, your, your other areas of your personal and home life relationships fall apart because you're doing these things wrong. Well, you, you know, you're going to find out one way or the other. Chances are it's going to be the hard way and some ways are harder than others. Getting booted from your friend's course, that's a bummer, but you can try again. Losing your relationship because you spend all your time at work because you can't manage stuff, well, I'd say that's a that's, that's a tougher. stiffer consequence. Oh yeah, that's that's massive. And you know what, for this fellow, that's actually a good one for him to learn because he's newly married. And one of the things that I, I want for him is for him to stay married. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I actually gave him a call this morning and I told him, listen, you can't even be two seconds late. You'll be booted from the course. On time means be in your seat, ready to go 10 minutes before the bell start, uh, goes off for us to start. And he said, thanks for the heads up. And yeah. ho hopefully he got it. So listen, what do you want our people to consume that you got going on right now? Yeah, look, I don't like people who end things with a sales pitch for something that costs money. I haven't proven to anybody yet. Even if they love what I had to say, they probably haven't had a chance to put it into action unless they paused it for three days and tried doing <laughs> something. So I'm going to say, look, if you liked what you heard at all and you liked the voice in which it was told or possibly could use me to tone it down a little bit because I am not always this way and I'm not always this way on my show, check out the Art of Charm podcast. Not not ironically named, I'll have you know, but check out the Art of Charm podcast. We have a lot of great thought leaders there. We have a lot of just brilliant people there from athletes like Tony Hawk all the way to General McChrystal and everybody in between, neuroscientists and, and human behavior behavioral economics. The whole point of the show is to make you better by giving you practical, applicable skills. So if that appeals to you, check out the Art of Charm podcast or go to theartofcharm.com. And we actually have a a free challenge, which will give people little missions, just like kind of the, some of the stuff I was talking about earlier today to help with critical thinking and, and prioritization and things like that. And that's theartofcharm.com 
slash challenge. And uh, it's, of course, that's free. And if you're in your car and you're like, crap, I can't go to a website right now, you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. That only works in the U.S., unfortunately, but everybody else can just go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge and check that stuff out. But like I said, the podcast is my baby and it has been for 10 years and I'd love to see you over there. Well, listen, that's fantastic. I'm uh, looking forward to listening to a whole lot more episodes on your podcast. We loved having you on. We'd love to have you on again in the future. Uh, damn, I'd like to get Stanley McChrystal on, on our podcast. <laughs> Michael, how do we make that happen? We've got Tony Hawk on. I want Stanley we'll McChrystal, man. He's a badass special we gotta, ops we got to learn the art of charm, I think, that's is it, what we got to do. That's it. Yeah. Uh, we really enjoyed this, Jordan. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to be on the show and sharing your wisdom with our listener. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. That wraps another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership podcast. To find out more about today's guest, who was a firecracker, you can go to thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. We'll have all the links that he mentioned on there as well. And listen, if there's somebody that you know that could benefit from listening to this podcast today and all the valuable information that was given, go down there, hit that share button, and send it by email and have them listen to the podcast themselves. It helps us get our message out, helps build our audience, and we would really appreciate it. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to the Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening. 